0: Our scripture reading today comes from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Would you please pray with me? Lord, please allow our hearts and minds to focus on immersing ourselves in your holy word so that we may receive the gift of your teaching. Amen. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook and at the voice of Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me.
1: There was one summer in college that uh, I decided to try and get ahead a little bit, and uh, it helped that the uh, summer science classes were easier. And uh, so I was in this class and uh, had some interesting uh, lab partners. One of them ran track, a really, really nice guy. The other one was also a very nice guy uh, who played football. His name was Brian Arakpo. This guy was, was huge. He would come in and he would thump his gigantic arms on the table and be like, what'd you get for number seven? And we're like, Brian here, like whatever you need, man. Like <laughs> <clears throat> his, his arms were, were huge. He was a really, really nice guy. And um, I mean, this guy, you know, he had a 39 and a half inch vertical. So he could just jump straight up like over three feet. Um, 40-yard dash in 4.63 seconds. I mean, I could maybe do 40 yards in a minute. Um, and so we would be talking and, 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 you know, so impressive. And, hey, man, like, what do you want to do? And he said, well, um, you know, I want to play pro ball. And, uh, and he did. He went on and he played for Washington. And then he, he played for the Titans for a little while. Um, he's a year younger than me. He's already retired. Um <clears throat> But here is the thing. Sitting there at that table with Brian, if there was ever any doubt, there wasn't, but if there was ever any doubt of whether or not I could play pro ball, it was all gone just by sitting at the same table with this guy. Because there is something that happens when when you are in the presence of of someone who is great. Great. It makes you aware of the gap between you two. There is this automatic comparison that begins to happen. We we all know what that's like. We all know what that's like. To to be in the presence. Maybe it's a maybe it's another musician or something that you you think is is just so far beyond you. Maybe it's an an artist, you know? Maybe, maybe I'm looking at Ruth's Ruth's painting and, and think, oh man. I'm going to set that paintbrush down, right? You, you see this gap. You see this distance because there's this automatic comparison that happens. Now, the question is, how do we react? These moments are unavoidable. You cannot avoid it. It's going to happen. And so the question is, how do you react when that happens? If it is happening with something or some area that, that we really care about, that we really care about, there are four typical ways that we will react. One is we could be inspired. We could be inspired to to look at this person and say, you know what? I will be as good as you someday. You can go find uh, an old video of Clay Thompson, who plays for the Golden State Warriors. And you can find an old video. of He's maybe around six or seven, and he's out there in the hall. His dad brought him back, and he's standing there. And guess who is walking up? It's Michael Jordan. And here he is, and young Clay is getting to meet him. And what he says is he looks at Michael Jordan, and and he has this moment. And then reflecting on that moment, he said, it inspired me. It inspired me to try harder, work harder, do more, to be the best. And so he went on and worked harder. I will be as good as you. The other thing that sometimes we do is actually just the opposite. We see someone who's so far beyond, and so we do the opposite. And we start to tear them down. This is what bullies do, by the way. We find some kind of a flaw, we find something that we don't like, and we just start to pick at it, as if to say, you will be no better than me when I'm done, right? This happens all the time, all the time. You could go out and you could take a bullet for the president, and someone on the internet is going to say, yeah, but did you know that he ran illegal dog fights? Or, yeah, but don't you think his ears are kind of weird? Or, yeah, but don't you think, right... Tear them down. Tear them down. That is another reaction we have. You will be no better than me when I'm through with you. The third reaction is this. Distraction. Distraction. I will forget you. Uh, Does anybody know how many streaming services there are? Anybody want to guess? I hear a number, but it's not loud enough. Over a hundred. You're you're close, Calvin. There, in fact, by the there may be over a hundred by now. There are at least over fifty, over fifty different things that you can that you can find that want to. Uh, some of them want to inform you. A lot of them want to distract you. And if you add in all the channels and all the cable and all that kind of thing, that number just grows and it grows and it grows. Not to mention, we can find all kinds of other good things like sports and hobbies and and whatever it is. We can find things to distract us when we see something and it's just so awesome, so great that we feel that gap and we say, you know what, I'm just not even going to think about you right now. I will forget you. And the fourth reaction is this. The fourth reaction is, is this if if distraction and and finding good things to c- completely consume us if that doesn't work sometimes we we flip into despair despair which says i will never be like you so i'm just going to give up despair is dangerous because it leads to apathy it leads to kind of your own nihilism the the nothing is is worth anything i'll never be good at anything i may as well not even try. And we have to think, how many good musicians, how many good artists, good writers, good leaders, how many, how many people have quit because of this, because they looked at someone and said, I will never be that good. When we are in the presence of greatness we see this gap between us. There is this comparison that happens whether you want it to or not. And in our passage, Isaiah is in the presence of greatness. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. It's, it's talking about is using this language of importance, this language of power, this language of, of kind of the, the gravitas, the weight, the glory of the Lord, and the smoke filling the temple, is this, this language of, of power and this language uh, even of worship. And Isaiah is here, and the angels are there, and, and these angels are in constant adoration. And they're not just talking about the greatness of the Lord. They say, holy, holy, holy. If you just wanted to mention it, you could say it once. If you wanted to emphasize it, you could say it twice. But if you say it three times, you are talking about the perfection of the Lord. Holy, holy, holy. He is perfect, He is powerful. He is perfect in all His ways. And then, Isaiah is here. And he hears this. And the whole room begins to shake at the voice of the angels. And what happens? There it is. That comparison, that reaction, he is seeing God in this vision in a way that none of us have, I'm sure. And and in this, now is the time where something has to happen. He has to respond in some way. But here is the problem. The problem is none of our typical reactions work with God. Think about it. You could could be inspired. You could see the Lord on His throne high and lifted up and be inspired and say, I'll be as good as you someday. I'll be as perfect. I'll be as powerful. I'll have those angels worshiping me. That is as absurd as thinking that I could play football like Brian. The, The gap is too great. It's impossible. By the way, that's the temptation in the garden, remember? I will make you like God. So here we see that. But here's the thing. Even if we could, even if we could, even if we could look at God and say, you know what? I can get there. I can get there on my own. I'll be as good as you someday. It would be kind of like the statue of David. Some of you uh, are familiar uh, with, with one of the, the things here. Um, the statue of David... Um, Russ Ramsey talks about this. This is one of the most perfect sculptures that, that has ever been done. Michelangelo did this out of a single piece of marble. He shouldn't have even been able to do it because this piece was already flawed and had some, some holes and things punched in it. But he did it anyway. And it is, it is probably as close to perfection as you can get in a sculpture. But here's the problem. The ankles are cracked. Cracked. The ankles of this enormous, beautiful sculpture are cracked. And so it does not matter how perfect the rest of it is because gravity will one day bring it to the ground. Humanity, at our best, without the Lord, still has cracked ankles. We can't get there on our own. The angels say, holy, holy, holy to the only God who is perfect, flawless, and unchanging. Well, there's another reaction Isaiah could choose. He could say, you will be no better than me. I will tear you down off of that throne, and I will put you underneath me. Well, it's pretty obvious to see the problem there, but let's think about it. Do you you know why, what bullies do to people, do you know why it works? When it works, it, it works because the bullies are really good at trying to find some angle where they can have power over someone. They can find some insecurity. They can find some kind of flaw. They, they can uh, sense something that you don't like about yourself, or maybe that you, they think you should be embarrassed about. Sometimes they are just physically stronger, but they find something that they can use to try and have power over their victim. But they have to be able to have power over it. The angels say here that the Lord is the Lord of hosts. Some translations, the Lord God Almighty. You cannot tear Him down. You have no power over Him. And no matter what, no matter what we say, no matter what we do, no matter what we think, nothing in us can cause Him to cease being who He is. We will never be able to make Him cease being who He is because of something that we've done. We have no power over Him. That reaction just won't work. The third reaction is this. Distraction. Okay, I I, I can't be as good as you. I can't bring you down. Then I will just forget about you. Now, I have to admit, we're pretty good at this one in the U.S., don't you think? We, we have insulated ourselves well with a lot of really good things, but here is the problem. You cannot distract yourself away from God's presence. What else do the angels say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Or maybe we could think about the psalm where David says, if I go into the heights of heaven, you're there. If I go into the depths of hell, you're there. I can't get away from your presence. This means that God can use our best days and He can use our worst days to wake us from our spiritual slumber. I think about what C.S. Lewis says where he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God is unescapable. You cannot get out of his presence, and there is no distraction that will sustain you long enough to ignore him if he wants to have you. You know, that's also why um, a lot of people start going back to church when they have kids is because, you know, God speaks to us in our pleasures and in our pains. Well, you know, kids are kind of both. So a lot of people will end up back in church. This last reaction here that we typically use is despair. I will never I will never be like you. So I'm just going to give up. I just will stop trying. I can never do enough to overcome my sin. I can never do enough to, to remove this stain from me. I can never do enough for any of this. And there is an element of truth to that because you can't. You can go back and you can follow every single law in here. You can sure try, but but you can't. You can't remove the stain of it. But the answer isn't to stop there and give up. The answer is what comes in verse 5. Isaiah says, "'Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips.'" And then there's that, that reason for it is my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. What, what Isaiah is doing is he's talking about his unclean lips. Um, John Calvin points out that Isaiah was a prophet. His lips were what he did for God. He was God's mouthpiece to the people. And he's saying, even as a prophet, even as a prophet, it's not enough. Not even my best, not even my best service, my best attempts for God. Are enough. And so he could come into despair, which despair would say, Woe is me, I am undone, I give up. The end. Close the book of Isaiah. But instead, what he's doing is he is confessing before God. He is acknowledging this gap. He is acknowledging this distance. He is acknowledging his own sin. And he is doing it openly in front of God as if to say, God, I, I, I can't do it and you have every right to leave me here. That's what confession is. Confession is saying, God, this is who you are, this is who I am, I, 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 can't, I can't cross this bridge, you have every right to leave me here. And when we do that, what does God do? Look at verses 6-7, through seven. it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips." Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah comes and he confesses the truth about who he is and who God is. And he does this openly before God and God atones for Isaiah. It's as if to say, Isaiah, I know you can't do it. I I know that you can't stand in my presence on your own, and so I am going to take care of it. And then he takes away the impurity, and Isaiah no longer trembles in God's presence. Do you see that? He's not trembling. He's not trying to get away. he's He's not even saying, you know, woe is me. All of that stops. And what happens is the very next thing that happens is he volunteers for service. The Lord says, whom shall I send? Who will go? And He says, here, pick me. Send me. I'll do it. Do you see that change? Do you see that shift in His behavior from, from I'm undone? I'm undone? And now He's saying, pick me. I'll go. I'll do whatever you want, Lord. That's because the Lord did what Isaiah could not do. And He atoned for Him when Isaiah confessed. Here's the thing. When we confess, what we see here is true all throughout Scripture. When we confess, it is God's delight to forgive us, to lift up our heads, to assure us, to assure our hearts that we have been forgiven, to to give us purpose. We never see that more clearly either than we do with Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, there's a story, it's in, it's in Luke uh, chapter 5, and there's this, this story of Jesus is teaching the crowds, and they start kind of pushing him near the edge of the water, and so he says, hey, Peter, get, get your boat and come over here, and then he gets in the boat, and then he teaches the people more, and then he says, hey, Peter, let's go out and catch some fish. And Peter says, uh, well, you know, Jesus, we tried that. Actually, we, we, were, we were fishing for a long, long time. And we couldn't catch anything, but since you said, we'll go do it. And they go out, <clears throat> and, and Jesus says, hey, put your, put your nets down over there. And they put their nets down. You could probably, you know, imagine, look on his face like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. And then he puts them in, and it says that their nets were so full that they were starting to break. And they had to call other people over to help them. Some people were astonished. They were all astonished. But, but what's so amazing is the reaction, especially with Peter. You see, Peter could have been inspired. He could have looked at Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, you know what? I'm going to work harder. I'm going to be able to do that. I'm going to be able to know where the fish are. Give me that spiritual sonar, okay? He doesn't do that. He could have tried to tear Jesus down. Jesus, you, your dad was a carpenter. You don't know anything about fish. You got lucky. We're the fishermen. We know how to do this. But do you want to come along next time? He could have tried distraction. He had every chance. The nets are starting to break. He, he could have just, you know what? Jesus, I, I don't have time for you right now. Let me get the fish. I'll get the fish in. I'll just, I'll think about you later. But what he does is he actually borders on despair saying, Lord, I'm a sinner, depart from me. But he ends it with this confession. And and, and the effect of what he does by acknowledging, confessing before Jesus, I'm a sinner, you have every right to leave me here. How do you think Jesus responds? I'm sure with great kindness in his voice, he looks at Peter and he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Someday you're going to catch people He had already told him that before. I'll make you, come with me and I'll make you fishers of men. And here he is. Don't be afraid. Remember what I promised? I can take care of your failure. I can take care of your sin. In fact, remember, remember what I said. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. It's that same pattern. We go to God and and we see an adoration. Remember from, from last time, adoration is saying, God, here's who you are. Here's who you are, and you are incredible. That starts that comparison. So that then we, we, we see ourselves, and, and then we confess. And we say, God, but here's who I am. Here's who I am. And you have every right, every right to leave me here. But Lord, I depend on your mercy. Because when we confess, we know that God loves to forgive. When we confess... When we acknowledge who we are, we we are we are just simply saying, Lord, this is who I am, and then we are trusting in the mercy of Jesus, knowing that that He became the coal on the altar of the cross, so that we might be clean. That's why we do what we do in worship. As we look at our liturgy and we see adoration, this is why we come to confession and assurance. The two go together. And now some might ask the question, well, but why do we keep confessing? Because didn't you say Jesus forgives us and all that? Y- yes. Here, here is why. Your sin is already forgiven. You, you are already part of the family of God. You, you are already joined in to the bride of Christ. But... Um, Just go ask your spouse sometime, hey, we're married. Do you need me to apologize anymore? Well, Jesus doesn't need it, but he allows us this opportunity for us as a reminder that we are in relationship and a reminder for our hearts because we have spiritual amnesia. And we need to hear the voice of Jesus again and again and again saying, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. There's no more comparison. I have made you holy. You are a new creation. You have my righteousness. And then we let those words drive us, just like Isaiah, we let those words drive us forward into mission so that when the Holy Spirit begins to tug on our hearts and say, hey, I'm leading you this way. Hey, I'm leading you that way. Hey, who will I send? We're the first ones to stand up. Knowing the great cost he paid, knowing what we have been forgiven, we're the first ones to stand up and say, Here I am, Lord. Send me. Would you pray with me?